This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with how teens experience this election, or at least how one of them does. Youth Radio's Jasmine Belier is a high school freshman in Denver. Like many others in Generation Z, I am lost. Getting forgotten in the national conversation is not new for us Gen Zers. Unlike the baby boomers, we were not born into America's prime. Unlike Generation X, massive strides in human rights did not inspire our upbringing. Unlike millennials, we never knew the 1990s boom. We just got the post-2008 bust. And in terms of our numbers, we are, to borrow a phrase from the Donald, huge. Walking down the hallway of my school, I see kids divided into three groups. First, there are the students who are strongly opinionated. One friend recently came off the school bus an emotional wreck after arguing with his father. His father told him he could move out until his values matched that of the family. For this group of teens, not being able to vote doesn't mean they can't be outraged. Second, there's a group of teens that sees the election as a source of entertainment. In classrooms, students comment on how hilarious they find Hillary's shoulder shimmy, check their phones, and see dozens of likes about a caterpillar in the Amazon that resembles Trump's hair. A student in one of my classes commented that the presidential debates were the best reality television since Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Lastly, there's the group that I'm in, the group of teens that is just disappointed. We were expecting a presidential race, not a verbal boxing match. We want to know why we have grown numb to daily shootings, why colleges keep raising the price of education, and why cybersecurity is a national joke. This election has seen a lot of big talk about returning to lost greatness or better times. Our siblings blame our parents for borrowing too much. Our parents blame our grandparents for taking too many entitlements. And the other way around. But we've never known another America. Without knowing the alternative, I'm not quite sure what those older generations stole from me, but I don't care. I just want my questions answered. If teens like me are already moved to tune out our civic responsibilities before we even get the chance to go to the ballot box, why on earth would we vote when that time actually comes? Youth voter participation has dropped in recent elections after hitting a high in 2008. Can Gen Z afford to be forgotten? Like the rest of my fellow Gen Zers, these are the questions that leave me feeling lost. If this is the best that America has to offer us, we may not want to be found. Jasmine Belier is a Denver high school student. Her essay was produced by Youth Radio, and it's posted in full at cprnews.org. The number of armed militias in the U.S. spiked after the election of the first black president in 2008. These heavily armed civilians are loosely linked by a disdain for the federal government. Reporter Shane Bauer wanted to learn more about the country's paramilitary movement, so he went undercover for Mother Jones to the U.S.-Mexico border, where he met quite a few Coloradans. And Bauer joins us from Boston. Welcome to the program, Shane. Hi, thanks for having me. Straight away, I want to qualify the undercover nature of your reporting. You actually used your real name to sign up for the militia, correct? 
Yeah, that's right. I uh, I started a new Facebook account using my real name and uh, essentially followed uh, a lot of uh, militia groups and Facebook automatically generated suggestions of more militias and I just friended a lot of people who uh, follow uh, those pages and um, kind of entered uh, the militia world that way and that's how I Uh, came to the 3% United Patriots, which is a uh, nationally organized militia that was founded in Colorado. Founded in Colorado, that's right. 3% United Patriots. I'll say that there are roughly 250 armed militias across the United States. What can you tell us about that group in particular that was uh, founded in Colorado in 2013, I think? Yeah, well, this group is part of a, a larger movement that calls itself the Three Percenter Movement. Um, the the people who associate with this movement believe that it took three percent of the American population to overthrow the British during the Revolution, and they they believe that if they can get three percent of the population in, behind their movement now, then they can restore the Constitution. Um, they uh, the the movement has kind of armed uh, factions. Three percent of three percent United Patriots is one of those, and probably the largest and and best organized. So they have chapters in many states around the country that uh, kind of train and organize locally. But then they'll come together for national events like uh, their border operations. But you write that members are not all about guns and ammo, that they've done relief work in Flint, Michigan, Louisiana, and South Carolina, including donating food and clothes to veterans. Is that right? That's right. They, they, uh, the leader has told me that they do relief work um, a lot in Colorado, especially uh, around veterans. And um, the border mission is not kind of their main uh Mission. They see themselves as a kind of defense against the federal government. Uh, some of the members um, are very conspiratorially minded. Um, some believe that the United Nations is going to invade the United States and, and take away people's weapons. I mean, there's a, kind of a pretty broad mix of people that, that belong to the movement. Um, but generally, um, I think you could say that they're all they all consider themselves constitutionalists. And so you met them at the border. You linked up with uh, this largely Colorado group. And tell us about who you met. Yeah, so I hadn't met anybody before I actually showed up at the border. Uh, what happened was I, I saw a page on Facebook. It was a private page about their border operation. And I requested access and was, was granted access. And then um, you know, there was a post just asking who's going to come down to the operation. And I said that I was, and, uh, they posted the coordinates and I flew to Tucson, Arizona, rented a truck and drove out, uh, deep into the desert, um, very remote part of Arizona, um, near Nogales. And I essentially just drove into what was, uh, kind of like a small military base. There were, uh, men patrolling it, um, you know, with semi-automatic rifles, uh, mostly AR-15s. And uh, I was wearing camo, and I just kind of drove in and uh, set up my tent. And um, there were guys just kind of uh, sitting around the fires, maybe uh, around 60 men um, from around the country, mostly from Colorado and Arizona. And these men would go from this base out on on operations where they were looking for... um, people crossing the border. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really surprised me out there was how much this group actually worked with the federal border patrol. Um, 
I, I witnessed a, a border patrol agent who said that he was an intelligence officer um, telling us where to set up uh, to find people crossing the border. He he told the, the leader of the militia that he would give them uh, unauthorized briefs, uh, even when they were back in Colorado. And uh, I later spoke to the, the leader of the militia, uh, Mike Morris, and he told me that he is in contact with the Border Patrol on a weekly basis. So they're, they're when they set up these operations, they, uh, the Border Patrol will suggest where they should go and when they should come. They are sharing intel in that regard. Is that legal? So what, what, what does the law say about these sort of paramilitary groups acting, I suppose, mostly sometimes in concert with border officials? Yeah, this the legality is a big question. Um, you know, the militia movement, uh, they essentially call themselves militia because they are saying that they are, you know, the same uh, of the same lineage of the militias of revolutionary and post-revolutionary time. And there are still laws on the books uh, around those militias. Um, so they kind of point to these arcane laws uh, to claim that they're legal. Um, you know, these laws, the laws that allow for an unorganized militia essentially um, allows the state to call upon the citizenry uh, in an emergency situation. There's nothing in the law that allows private groups to uh, train. And in fact, uh, most states have laws against paramilitary training, and some states even have laws against um, or that regulate militia groups. Um, but the these laws have never been enforced uh, against private militias. And one of the challenges of these laws is that they generally require that the uh, militia is promoting civil unrest, which is a very hard thing to prove. Mm. You write that Colorado's anti-terrorism law strictly prohibits training with guns to promote civil disorder, and uh, 41 other states have similar laws, but uh, you just reflected there on uh, the difficulty of enforcing them. Right. So when these uh, militia members, again, many of them from Colorado that you met, when they encounter someone who's crossing the border, and I also know that that, um, they're concerned about drugs crossing the border. Mm-hmm. When they encounter someone, what do they do? Well, I never uh, encountered anyone while I was there. Um, and my understanding, though it was never clearly explained to me, was that um, we were to uh, radio the the militia base and the militia base would call the Border Patrol and the Border Patrol would show up um, and detain the person. Um, but you know, when we went out on these operations, often in the middle of the night, a lot of these guys were really amped up. A lot of them were veterans of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, there were snipers. Um, and, you know, when we would kind of roll out in our truck, um, these guys, you know, it, it kind of had the sense of uh, going to war. I mean, they talked about hunting Mexicans um they, you know, they regularly would kind of joke about shooting people. And it wasn't hard to imagine a scenario in which, you know, somebody jumps out from behind a bush and runs and it escalates quickly. And in fact, uh, the Border Patrol on one occasion uh, came to us at night because they saw us with their infrared technology and uh, didn't know who we were. And there was a brief standoff where the militia and the Border Patrol were pointing their weapons at each other. 
Um, and, you know, something I wanted to, to bring up about Colorado in particular, since this is kind of the stronghold of this uh, particular militia, yeah. um, you know, they, they train extensively. Some of their trainings have hundreds of, of people. Um, but there, I also learned about a uh, particular uh, type of training that the 3% United Patriots do there. They, they have kind of a special, what's kind of like a special operations unit within the militia. They go through a special training that was described to me um, by one of the men who who conducts a training that involves uh, waterboarding. Um, it involves people being blindfolded and strapped to uh, you know uh, tilt tables. It involves people getting put in what they call stress boxes out in the uh, Colorado winter and uh, tased and even cattle prodded. Oh. And how does this Colorado group compare to some of the others around the country? Would you say? I mean, I think uh, their training, their ideology is all very similar, um, but Colorado uh, seems to have the largest numbers. And they they essentially divide the state up into uh, zones, and each zone kind of trains on its own. And uh, the, the leader who's in Denver um, says that generally every week there is a training somewhere in Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with senior editor at Mother Jones, Shane Bauer, who went undercover with an armed paramilitary group along the U.S.-Mexico border, 3% United Patriots. And um, we talked earlier about sharing intel between the official border patrol or law enforcement along the border and these paramilitary groups. Do the border agents, does law enforcement appreciate the extra help? Um, I mean, if, if that's a real void there, isn't that something to consider? Uh, I did see the Border Patrol uh, regularly kind of thank the militia for coming down there. One one agent, the intelligence agent, said, uh, you know, you guys, he said, I appreciate you guys being down here. You do my job uh, for no pay at all. Um the issue, I think, is that, you know, these guys are not um, trained in the same way the Border Patrol is trained. These could be anybody. Um, I mean, and um, some of them are, you know, just kind of 18-year-olds from the, the suburbs that um, are going on these monthly trainings and then kind of going off in their own volition to find uh, Mexicans crossing the border. Um, you know, so it's it's a much more uh, loose kind of situation and potentially more volatile than, um, you know, the Border Patrol operating itself. Yeah. And as you report, the U.S. Border Patrol says, quote, it appreciates the efforts of concerned citizens, but does not endorse or support any private group or organization taking matters into their own hands. You you alluded to some of the, I mean, it sounds like racist comments that some of these members have made. Are, mm-hmm. are these racist groups? Um, the militias in general uh, would not ca- ever call themselves white supremacist organizations. They're not racist in that kind of sense that, you know, we think of, um, you know, kind of neo-Nazi or Ku Klux Klan or anything like that. Um, and they generally uh, officially... Um, you know, uh, discourage uh, racism in their ranks. And, and many militias will have, you know, one or two people of color. Um, but that said, you know, I heard kind of racist comments um, pretty regularly on the base. And there's, it's pretty uh, easy for somebody who is overtly racist to operate uh, 
in that world and uh, go unchallenged. Did politics come up during your time with these men? And uh, I wonder if there was anything that surprised you, if it did. You know, um, I think these guys um, are largely outside of politics the way that we think of it. Uh, Most of them are uh, very suspicious of the federal government. And if anything unites them, it's their shared disdain for the federal government generally. Um, You know, I expected to hear more talk about Trump than I did. Um, Hillary Clinton would come up from time to time. They generally, um, you know, really disdain her. Um, But, you know, most of their kind of political world is um, internal. And, you know, they there's all kinds of fissures uh, between militias. And it, it just gets kind of so deep that it develops its own kind of politics. Do you think it's a libertarian politics? I would say that, yeah, there is a, a major libertarian uh, strain. And I did hear some people say that, you know, they were going to vote for for Gary Johnson. Um, some, when I asked them, said they would vote for Trump. Uh, some, I imagine, won't vote at all. What more would you like to know about these groups? And are you worried now that you've revealed who you are um, for your safety at all? Um, Well, fortunately, I live in California, uh, which is quite far from from a lot of these guys, though I did actually spend a few months training with militias in California before I joined the 3% United Patriots. But, um, you know, before we published the story, I did reach out to everybody who was in the story, and I was surprised Um, that many of them were willing to be interviewed um, even after they found out that I had been um, sort of undercover among them. um, They were eager just to kind of get their side out. And I think to some extent eager for the publicity. Um, You know, many of them I I didn't hear from, and I imagine there are uh, some that are angry about it. But um, the leadership uh, at least uh, was actually pretty cooperative. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Jane Bowers, senior editor at Mother Jones. He went undercover with an armed paramilitary group, 3% United Patriots, or 3UP, which began in Colorado. You can watch a video related to his reporting at cprnews.org. Just ahead, political odd couples. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How about a refreshing election story now about people who managed to disagree politically but still love each other? Through our Public Insight Network, we asked you to name your favorite political opposite. And it's how we found Claire Felleter of Denver and her father, Vince. She is 24, works at Regis University. He is a lawyer in Grand Junction. Uh, I'm glad to have both of you on the program. And Vince, let's start with you. When you were Claire's age, where were you politically? Oh, I was liberal. Um, I went to college at Boulder, and I was pretty close to where she is now, I'd say. Okay. And uh, how would you describe your politics today? I'm very conservative. Why? Um, Just life experience. I'm going through things, and I think I've always been interested in the political world and what happens. And I think you see things, and you can change your opinion. And I've become more conservative as the years have gone on. Who are you supporting for president? Trump. Donald Trump. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Claire 
your dad's a Trump supporter, I, I suppose that makes you the liberal in this pair? I am the liberal in the pair, yes. And who are you supporting for president? I'm an avid Hillary Clinton supporter. An avid Hillary Clinton yes. supporter. And w- why do you say that? Um, I just really appreciate her stances on a lot of social justice issues, um, her commitment to women's rights, and I would say minority rights as well. And so with strong views on both sides, how do you continue to get along? I guess, would you say that you do? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, we've definitely had our tense moments, but a lot of the ways that we deal with things are through humor. Humor? Yes. Okay. Can you give me an example? Yeah. Well, I I know my dad loves to joke that um, I'll be conservative when I'm older and I have more money. Um, And I like to remind him of his young liberal days at CU Boulder. So uh, we joke about things like that. And most of all, we talk about how in the, at the end of the day, our votes will cancel out each other. So that's the great thing about the political system, right? Vince, what would you add about how you navigate this with your daughter? Oh, I think she's spot on. Um, humor does help. Um, we've certainly had some heated discussions, but, you know, you've also got to understand that we love each other. We're family. And so I respect her opinion. She's very passionate about what she believes in. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of our country. We're allowed to have different political beliefs, but we're, we're all still family. Mm-hmm. You've both made references to heated discussions. What tends to be the trigger for those? Oh, well, for me, I think a lot of it has to do with gender, um, you know, which has played a huge role in this election. So some of the things that have been said or or not said have, um, I think, started some heated conversations for us as well. Can you remember a particular event? Oh, yeah. I think, um, you know, a lot of things that, that Trump has said about women, which... Um, I don't think my father agrees with, but it certainly, as a candidate, has, he supports comes up. What do you remember telling him? Um, I think we've we've just talked about. For me, you know, it's it's personal, and I think he has the ability to overlook those things where I I don't as a woman. Vince, how do you react? I'm sorry. How do you react to that? Well, uh, I mean, I I do respect Claire's position. She's a woman. She certainly is going to perceive things differently, and they're going to affect her differently than they do myself as a man. Um, I do have different feelings from her as far as what Trump's intent is and his feelings towards women. I understand he said some things that certainly I think are I don't agree with at all, um, but none of us are perfect. It's more an issue of who I think would be the best president for us for the next four to eight years. And why do you think that's Trump? Um, I'm I'm very concerned about the border security issue. I think as a nation, we can't exist if we don't have some control over who comes into our country and what they can do when they're here. So I I don't think that's racist. I don't think it's meant to exclude any particular group. It's just, you know, we have to control who's coming in. We have to control who we are as a people, as a nation. And that's one of the big issues that I certainly support Trump on. Has has this particular topic of discussion come up before between you two? Yeah, it certainly has. And uh, what do you make of it? Well, I don't know. I think my what you'll find that we have in common is my dad and I have a deep respect for the American dream. Um, how we interpret that is different. And I think the way our nation looks now is very different than it did when he was my age. And I firmly believe in a more supportive, open, accepting nation. And I think one of the biggest ways to do that is by welcoming Im- immigrants with open arms. I've heard a lot of this campaign referred to as scorched earth. Mm. Um, How do you feel about the election in general? And I wonder how that influences your conversations. You know, I think at this point, we're all kind of ready for it to be over. Um, But I think we, we also agree that, you know, we've been frustrated with the way we've seen our government work in the past couple of years. And really, we want 
a return to bipartisanship. We want people to work together. Do you think that's possible, Vince? Um, I hope so. I mean, whatever happens next Tuesday, there's going to be November 9th, next Wednesday. And we're all hopefully still going to be here and we're a nation. And just like, you know, Claire and I are family, well, we're all a larger family as a as a country. And the country's interests are certainly best served when we can work together in spite of our differences. Depending on who wins, do you think one of you will rub it in? Maybe a little. My dad already told me if I if I for if I'm too busy to mail in my ballot, that's okay. He let me know that that was fine this year. <laughs> There's always another election. She could vote then. You know? <laughs> All right. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So you heard there Claire Felder, who works in service learning at Regis University in Denver. Her father is a lawyer on the other side of a different divide, the continental one in Grand Junction. There's a picture of them along with Claire's mom, Lee, who doesn't like politics at all, at cprnews.org. And while you're there, you can see comments from other listeners who wrote to tell us about the folks they love but disagree with politically. Just ahead, meet Trotbot. The giant horse-like robot developed in Denver by kids and a geeky dad. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Time now for your feedback in loud and clear. There was lots of response to our story about a law enforcement encounter in the Denver Tech Center after this 911 call came in about a man with a rifle. He was black. He was thin. He had a black shirt on, black pants. The rifle was black. The rifle had a black strap. It actually wasn't a man at all, but our All Things Considered host, Joanne Allen. And she wasn't carrying a rifle, but golf clubs in a case. We had Joanne sit down with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's deputy who stopped her, Tom Finley, so they could talk about their encounter. What if they had gone really poorly and I had shot you and then found out they were golf clubs? Well, I thought, what if he had shot me? And I died. (laughs) And I'm thinking that because my father is 101 years old. And I just couldn't imagine him getting that news. Sonia Erickson of Denver said the piece is, quote, one of the best works of journalism I have ever heard on the topic of complexity science. You clearly demonstrated the importance of examining and learning from what went well in a specific high stakes encounter. Sandra Perkins, also of Denver, said the story took her breath away. I'm African-American, I'm female, and I'm probably about the same age as Joanne Allen. There's too much hate. It, it could have easily have gone another way, and I was in a complete state of shock that somebody would think a black woman was a black man. Joanne's experience is making an impact beyond Colorado. WNYC, a public radio station in New York City, also picked up her story. An update on a story from about a year ago about improving relationships between the police and minority youth. Denver's police watchdog, the Office of the Independent Monitor, brings officers and students together for several hours to talk to each other. We witnessed this and then spoke with Officer Denise Gomez and Adiante Thompson. I want the youth to see that we're human, and I will also want want to see where they're coming from. Today, talking to Officer Denise, it made me realize that She's not out there to just, like, target us. They're out there to do their job. 
Well, the Office of the Independent Monitor just released a report saying the program has exceeded expectations and it plans to bring hundreds more students into the program next year. There's a bit more to add to our story from last week about the families of Aurora theater shooting victims. They're frustrated that corrections officials won't reveal where the perpetrator is. James Holmes was moved to a prison out of state. We heard from Karen Teves, who lost her son Alex in the attack, and from District Attorney George Brockler, who prosecuted the case. They called on Governor John Hickenlooper to reveal the shooter's whereabouts. We then spoke to the governor. When we have a prisoner who is a celebrity of a sort who's committed a crime at such a level that they become a target for vigilante efforts, Uh, someone like Jeffrey Dahmer would come to mind, to protect the people that are protecting them, you generally take them out of state and you put them in a place where they have the, to a large extent, the the opportunity to become anonymous. The governor said the secrecy was in keeping with an agreement, a compact among states regarding prisoner transfers. He said revealing where Holmes is would be reckless. Well, after the conversation with Hickenlooper aired, District Attorney Brockler got back in touch, pointing out that nowhere in the agreement is there a requirement that a prisoner's whereabouts be secret. So we asked the governor for further clarification. His office emailed us, quote, These issues are worked out between the sending and receiving state before the transfer is complete. Confidentiality is a factor the party states consider when deciding whether or not to accept an out-of-state prisoner. While the compact does not require confidentiality, the governor cannot unilaterally waive it when the party states have made it a condition of the transfer. These rules are followed by all of the signatory states. If Colorado were to ignore a confidentiality agreement, it would affect our ability to make or receive transfers in the future. Finally, we profiled a Colorado woman recently who has chosen to live in her car. Diane Coyce has a decent-paying job. She wasn't kicked out of her place. She just wants to save money. And with Metro Denver rents where they are, she thought this was the fastest way to do it. So I have blackout curtains for the sides of my car. So I shut the car off. I lock the doors. I climb in the back. I hang my blackout curtains on both sides. There's no real census taken of people who've chosen to become rubber tramps, as they sometimes call themselves. But we asked if there are others who live like Diane Coyce. Mason Moyer of Boulder responded. She lives in a short school bus. We spend most of our lives thinking that of all the things that we're supposed to do, which is you're supposed to grow up, go to college, find your partner, buy a house, and, you know, have kids and live happily ever after. And that dream... That idea of norm has never fit on me. That It doesn't even sound pleasant. I just want to be out on the road and exploring and experiencing as much as I possibly can. And Kyle Vines of Denver said he and his wife moved into an RV about a year and a half ago. Quote, life on the road is challenging. The winter is especially tough here in Denver. Water freezes overnight, which makes it hard to make coffee in the morning. Regarding being lonely, we find the opposite to be true. There are two of us in the RV, but we've also found communities of other vagabonds to share stories, dinner, and drinks with. We're glad you share your feedback. You can do that through Twitter, at Colorado Matters, Facebook, CPR News. Email us through the website by clicking contact at the top of cprnews.org or comment beneath any individual article at the website. 
16-year-old Denver High School junior Ben Vogley has spent a quarter of his life making a robot that walks. He calls it Trotbot. He initially created a prototype out of Legos, then made an SUV-sized version from wood. Now he wants to use it to help other kids learn robotics. Vogley just won three awards at a gathering of inventors in New York, and he joins CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. I'm glad to be on. You go to George Washington High School in Denver, but your work on TrotBot dates back to middle school. Why did you set out to make a walking robot? Well, it all started back in 2012 when we discovered Theo Jansen's Strand Beast, which is this incredible walking machine that goes over the beaches of Holland. It looks very lifelike, like a animal just moving along. And when we saw that, we decided that we wanted to build our own. So we spent months and months and months and months working in Lego to build different types of walking mechanisms like the Strand Beast. And we found after we had kind of built all these things that they didn't really walk that well, which was a bit of a disappointment. They couldn't really go over obstacles in a way that, you know, we wanted. So we decided that we needed to, you know, design our own walking machine that could actually um, walk over terrain because, you know, we wanted to take these things out into nature and really, you know, make them functional. And you did this with an, a group of students initially. Yes, we did. Um, oh. Yeah, and describe what the first version or versions look like. So I would think about it like a carriage with two horses supporting it on either side walking along. That is how our Lego versions looked, and that is how our first big wooden one looked. Right, and we'll talk about that. The Lego versions were little, and they had feet that could lift their legs pretty high up, Yes, right? exactly. That was... You know, the main point of designing the TROPBOT linkage mechanism, it was so that it could step very high and go over obstacles. And after that, you built this huge wooden multi-legged version. Uh, We've posted a video of TROTBOT's evolution at CPRnews.org. I wish we could show it now over the air. You see it walking out of your garage, and it's pretty incredible. It actually fits perfectly in the garage. Why make it so large? Well, you know, we had tested out TrotBot in Lego so many times that we were kind of very confident in it. So we, you know, somewhat naively thought that, oh, hey, it's going to be totally easy to make it to that size. Now, that turned out to not be the case. It was definitely a big challenge. But that is kind of why we chose to make it that size, because, you know, there's a big wow factor when you have it at that sort of scale. And we really like that. Lots of people have developed walking robots. What's unique about yours? We talked about that high gate. Um, exactly. That's it. Uh, Tropbot has a very high footstep, which means that it can go over obstacles, and it's rounded on either end, which means that it doesn't trip over obstacles. So it walks extremely well um, in, for a walking mechanism, and that's what really makes it unique, and that's what really gives it a level of functionality that some of these others don't have. And why call it Trotbot? Um, You know, it was just an idea that we came up with. We were thinking about calling it Stanley after our school, but uh, we decided to just call it Trotbot since, you know, that's a neutral name and it sounds good. I I don't know, Trotbot, it trots along and it's a robot. Um, 
One of your goals was to make a robot that could go over various terrain, as you said. Is there a practical application for this? Maybe it could be used for the military at some point? Um, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. But, you know, I really don't know. And that's what I'm excited about with this whole or in terms of me posting all this stuff online, because I'm hoping that people are going to take a look at this and, you know, get inspired and geek out on Tropa on their own and come up with all these other really cool uses for it. Have you taken the wooden robot outside to walk in any other places besides near your street? Um, No, just our garage and alleyway. Um, That one was a very, very heavy robot. So, you know, we were a bit afraid of walking it out too far away from our house. But we're making a version two out of bamboo. And we're hoping that we'll be able to take that one in all these other places because it's much lighter and stronger. And... um. You are planning, um, if you don't develop it into something else that folks can use, say, for the military, Mm -hmm. as we said, you've created this website called DIY Walkers, and it's to help other people with robotics. Exactly. Um, Explain how yours can help other people use those skills and learn those skills. Well, TropBot is just a really big challenge. Building these walking mechanisms um, is a frustrating process, but I think that you grow a lot as you do it, at least for me. But the problem with them is that it's almost too hard to get started. These walking mechanisms are extremely complicated. So by kind of posting this stuff, I'm hoping that I can get people over that first hurdle and to get into it and really kind of explore and learn a lot of these valuable skills. I imagine that something like this, this huge wooden structure, must take a a lot of trial and error. Oh, yes. And um, (laughs) you start something, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Uh, How frustrating can it get to do something like that? It can get pretty bad. It is definitely a really difficult process to do. And occasionally, like, we would take the thing out for walking tests and it would break and we would be really disappointed. But we would just keep on persevering. Because, you know, the joy of building it is, you know, something that's kind of indescribable. You know, designing something and then turning it into something that is that huge is, you know, just a big incentive to keep on going no matter what happens. Um, You've always been interested in building things. But your mom says you're one of those kids that could spend a whole afternoon watching anthills. You like to watch how lizards and frogs moved. How did that affect the way you build things? Well, I think that I've always been, you know, the sort of person who kind of obsesses over things. And I think that that kind of translates to this Tropbot project, I guess. I kind of stuck with it in the same way that I would, you know, stick with watching lizards and stuff like that. So that's kind of how it translates. And then also, you know, just making something that looks like an animal, I think is appealing for, you know, that same reason. And um, you're a high school junior. What do you want to do for college? Um, Engineering is definitely really appealing just because of, you know, the experience that I've had with this project. And, you know, engineering is all about solving problems, coming up with these solutions and making things work. And that's kind of the essence of what we have been doing with this Tropbot project. So, you know, engineering, definitely very appealing. Ben, thanks so much for being here. All right. Thank you very much, Andrea. Ben Vogley is a junior at George Washington High School in Denver, speaking there with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. He created a walking robot he calls Trotbot. 
And he recently won three awards at a gathering of inventors in New York called the World Maker Fair. You can see a video of Trotbot's evolution from a small Lego toy to an SUV-sized wooden version at cprnews.org. We'll be right back with what's next for Roller Derby. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Slashley Simpson, Georgia O'Grief, Princess Philea. These are some of the punnier, kitschier names in the sport of roller derby. As Legs Are Us working with Stephanie Gens and Aaron Gobral, Wilhelm now approaching the pack. Ten seconds left to go in the penalty. Snot Rocket Science would still be eligible for lead if Wilhelm can't claim it. Jacksonville holding back Wilhelm. Footstep to the outside. She was called on a cut in the process. This is going to be a power jam right back for Jacksonville. Denver unable to get lead. So that's from a game Denver ended up winning, which helped it get to this weekend's World Championship Tournament. Increasingly, roller derby teams, including in Denver, are moving away from the kitschy names and dolled-up reputations. We're going to talk about the mainstreaming of the sport with Chrisanna Barrett, who's part of the Mile High Club team competing this weekend. Welcome to the program. Hi there. I'm super excited to be here. You were formerly known on the track as, and I'm going to pronounce this very carefully, <laughs> Bricks Hit House. Yes, yeah. Chris, that is- that, that, was, that, that was the name. <laughs> How has Denver Roller Derby changed its image in recent years, do you think? Well, we've made a lot of changes. Um, since I've been on the Mile High Club, our um, our all-star team, we go by our last name. So all of us have derby names, but we we like to kind of up that professionalism and, and, and kind of bring that to the sport. So we all go by our last name. So internationally in derby, I'm known as Barrett. Um, we're all known by our last names. Um in addition to that, we've kind of changed our image in general um, from kind of the, like you said, dolled up. We used to be the Denver Roller Dolls, and now we're Denver Roller Derby. Mm. And a lot of that is to um, is due to the fact that we um, had men join our league. That's um, right. A uh, little bit ago. You, so. you changed your logo as yes. well. So instead of a pigtails logo, <laughs> I think I actually have a shirt of that yeah. from when I attended the Roller Dolls. Now it's an airplane wing. You can see this mm-hmm. evolution at cprnews.org. What do you think the the different imagery and the dropping of the cutesy names? What does that What does that do for the sport? Um, I just think it takes it from something that is you know thought of as kind of something people do on the side, you know, and something that we. Um, you know, it, it's it just takes it from a, a level of of that sort of um, kitschy image that we we kind of don't want to identify with necessarily anymore, and and takes it to that professional sports level, uh, a really clean, crisp um, sports logo. If you look at you know a lot of the professional football logos are really clean, and so we wanted to kind of go with something that was very um, you know obvious that we're a sports team. Will you explain the sport just briefly for us? Yeah, yes. Briefly, that's funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why? Is it, is it hard to explain? Um, well, there's um, there's five skaters from each team on the track at a time, uh, provided there's no penalties um, from each side. The track um, is in a circle. It is in a circle, yes. Um, and there's one skater called a jammer, and then there's four called blockers. Um, and basically the whistle is blown and everyone gets to skate forward or not in lots of cases because okay. we like to stop people. Um, and then the the jammer's goal is to get out of the pack, get through all of those eight other skaters, their, their friends included. Um, and once they get back around the track, 
they are eligible to score points by passing their opponent's hips. So you can score up to five points per pass um, and then within a two minute period or less, depending on, you know, when the jam is called off, um, you, can, you can score kind of an unlimited amount of points within that time period. Oh, right. So passing is key. That's, yes. what, that's what racks points exactly. up in roller derby. Yes. You mentioned earlier that men have joined mm-hmm. the organization. And I think there's a youth team, too. Yes, we have juniors as well. How is how is that having the men around? It's amazing. I love our dudes. Um, they the have dudes the, around. The dudes, uh-huh. yes, yes, we love them. Um, yeah, Ground Control is our men's team, and they actually just came out with the rankings for uh, end of their season, and they actually are ranked fifteenth in um, men's the men's um, derby association, which is amazing for them. Um, but we love skating with them. They're they're big. They're aggressive. They bring an element to our practices that. Um, just challenges us in a different way. So is it co-ed on the track? No. Okay. So there's we we have two different associations, our women's association and our men's association association. We're just lucky enough to have them all on the track at the same time for certain practices. I see. Uh, are the men, the dudes attracting a crowd as as the women too? Um yeah, it's a it's a lot of the same crowd. Um, I mean, a lot of our women go to men's champs. A lot of the the men for der- the Derby dudes come to, you know, our champs, and and we really kind of coexist and really support each other. So um, it's it's a lot of the same crowd, but um, you know, it's just adding that extra element. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner, and we are getting a picture inside Denver Roller Derby and how the sport is evolving, professionalizing. Do you consider yourself a, a pro, Chrisana? Um, well, as as pro as it can get. <laughs> we um, we play at the top level that, that there is available at this point. Um, there There is no such thing as professional roller derby. We all have day jobs, most of us, and, and most of us do this as a side thing. We pay our own way and we do it because we love it. So, yeah. Is it dangerous? Yes, <laughs> but it's awesome. It's worth it. It's um, it's it's only dangerous if you play dangerously. There's a lot of ways to protect yourselves. We wear full pads. Um, I've seen some pretty ugly injuries, but I've never had one. Um, it just depends. I mean, it's kind of one of those things. How do you make time for roller derby if you have a separate job? I mean, because you're also on the road at at you know competitions. Yeah. Um, well, I I have a job that works for that. Um, for me, you know, I, I have, I have a great, great, I work for a great company that really supports my derby career. Um, I've worked for places that haven't. I like to tell people that I've broke up, broken up with two boyfriends and quit two jobs for this sport. So, um, <laughs> it just depends. I mean, we all love it a lot and there's people that have quit derby to pursue their careers and there's people that have quit their careers to pursue, pursue derby. So it just depends. I am going to miss the names a little bit. Like yeah. Slashley Simpson. I just, I, I, I saw that once, I think, on a roster. I never yeah. forgot it. What were some of your favorite derby names? And, and will you miss them? Um, yeah, there's there's a few. I mean, we still go by them to each other. Like, my friends and my teammates still call me Bricks. And, I, you know, we know each other as that. So, it's, I, no, I mean, I kind of like the last name concept. Um, but name some of your favorite derby names. Um, well, one of my favorites of all times, and I don't even think she skates anymore, but um, there's a gal from, I think, Seattle, and her her name was Jalapeno Business. And I just thought every time they said that, it was just the funniest. Jala- oh, jalapeno oh, in- Business. Like all up in your business. Yeah, but Jalapeno, yeah. Oh, very clever. Favorites. Yeah. Um, and then 
Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go say another one. Sure. Um, I mean, there's there's big names that you that probably will never go away. Like you're going to hear Scald Eagle forever. You're going to hear, hear Bonnie Thunders forever. Those girls are top jammers, you know, in the world. And then they go by their derby names. How old is this sport? Well, modern derby has been around for 10 plus years now. Um, and but derby like derby has been played for a long time. You in the seventies they were playing it on bank track, you saw it on TV and they were throwing elbows and stuff like that. We play a completely different sport, but it's an evolution of that sport. So it's quite it's been around for quite a while. Just briefly, where do you see it going? You know, I see it going wherever um the skaters want to take it. There's a lot of controversy kind of on where if we want it to continue to be, you know, for the skaters, by the skaters, if we want it to kind of elevate to that Olympic level. I mean there's oh. there's World Cup now, both men and women. So it just you know um, I want to just—I want it to keep being fun, is what I want. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm super excited to have been here. Thank you. Chrisanna Barrett will compete with the team from the Denver Roller Derby League in the International Championships this weekend. We talked about the mainstreaming of roller derby. I'm Ryan Warner. Pretty boring name there. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.